Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 41 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 13th of November. And Leon, what's on the menu for this week? Well, Gary, first of all, we're going to have a chat with David Wright. He is a cash flow expert. He uh, runs a company called Simply Budgets. He's going to be talking to us all about how to manage budgets. Budgets, how to manage your cash flow, and uh, very informative it is. Aimed mainly at small to medium businesses, but and a lot of common sense. That's right. So we're going to have a chat with him, and then we're going to have a chat with economist Nicholas Gruen all about innovation, which of course is big, with the government expected to bring out an innovation statement soon. So we're going to ask Nicholas Gruen for his views about it. And uh, unusual they are compared with the uh, sort of gossip in Canberra. That's right. That's right. But uh, first of all, let's have a chat with David Wright. David Wright, uh, you're the uh, cash flow expert uh, helping businesses with their budgets. Uh, What are the key things businesses should know? Well, I guess everybody in business says cash flow is king, but I'm not sure that they really know what that means. Uh, About 20 years ago, I realised that mums and dads didn't have a clue about how to manage their cash flow. Over the years, I've come to realise that small business people are mums and dads, and they take what they don't know at home into their business. And when their business isn't making a profit or it seems like they're struggling with, with money, they think they make more sales. And obviously, sales is an important part of the picture. How, how should businesses manage their cash flow? Unfortunately, or, or fortunately in business, having a blindfold on isn't funny. But most business people have a blindfold on in that they don't know where they're supposed to be. So where they are is just good luck or bad luck. How is accumulating lots of sales not exactly conducive for uh, perfect cash flow? Look, if a business can generate so many sales that they've got more cash flow than they know what to do with, they're not going to have a problem with cash flow in the area that I work in. But when a business is sort of struggling, getting started, um, trying to find its feet, wondering why can't I pay my bill, why can't I pay my bills, why can't I pay my bills, it's not always about sales. It's about when the money's there, people tend to have this mindset, okay, the pressure's off, I can go and buy the new this, the new that. I can put some plant and equipment, I can buy a new car, whatever, not realising the implications of those decisions down the track. So cash flow projections is what I do. And and as soon as you start doing cash flow projections, because to me a budget, which is what most people what most people think of as a budget, I call a flat two-dimensional budget. I talk about three-dimensional budgeting where you're talking about what's coming in, what's going out, that's two-dimensional, and when does it fall due? That's three-dimensional budgeting. And as soon as you know what your bank balance needs to be today, you'll think twice about racing out and buying a new car because you had a good week, made some sales. It just helps you to get very level-headed about your cash, managing your cash flow. So what are the principles? What are the fundamental principles of uh, cash flow management? You... you you can't con- plan what you can't control. So there are th- basically the way I see it, there are three expenses. There are ones that are really predictable. And in business, you've got fixed expenses that are mostly predictable, insurance, telephone, electricity, all those vary a bit with the amount of business that you do. And then you've got your variables, which depend on the amount of turnover that you're doing. And work can't have expenses in relation to consumables, but you've still got your fixed expenses. So the motto is control what's controllable. So if you make a list of the things that you know you have to pay for regardless of whether you're doing business or not, that's a starting point. Work out what that adds up to for the year. And then if you want to run your, your business on a weekly turnover basis, you basically say, okay, 
that's so much a week. Anybody can do that bit. But then it's, okay, but when do all of these fall due? Some are six-monthly, some are monthly, some are fortnightly, some are yearly. So you put them all on a calendar, and the software I've developed does this for you. Basically, is when does it fall due? How often does it happen? When's it due next? And in a matter of a couple of seconds, you're looking at the next year in advance, and you can see this is where I must be for this and this and this. So um, straight away, you've taken control of, of something that's really easy to control once you know how. Then all your variables, which are going to depend on the amount of turnover you do, you would go, okay, so my goal for this year is to turn over $2 million. So therefore, I'm looking for a monthly income of around about X amount of dollars on my mental arithmetic's not that quick. So based on that, my consumables for each month should be roughly this much. If I factor that into the equation as well, I've then got a reasonably educated um, set of targets to aim for every day for the next year. And if I'm getting ahead of those targets, I know that I'm making a profit and I can go and spend some money on extra things. If I'm not hitting those targets, I need to go back and have another look and see, well, where's where's the issue? Is it I'm not making enough sales? Is it that I'm spending more than I thought I was going to spend? And analyse the the difference between the plan and the reality. But the question is, I mean, how does a business not know it's not hitting the targets? Well, if it hasn't got targets, it can't hit them. So the the answer is to create the targets. So that's I, I spent thousands of hours developing software that in a couple of seconds flat can do that. For somebody who, who doesn't have that software, they could get a calculator and a calendar, mark all of their bills on the calendar. It would take them hours, but they could do the same calculations. David, the other question would be how aware of the of tax and the ATO's rules and, and its demands would small business people be? Because a lot of them get themselves in a lot of strife, don't they? I come across people almost well, every week who are struggling and we're talking small business owners, mums and dads, maybe the builder, plumber, electrician, whatever, and they have a tax debt. And it's basically because we're all unpaid tax collectors since the GST came in. And when you're not making sales and you're trying to pay bills, any money that's in your bank account seems like fair game. Uh, it and, and because not all of the money that that you collect, sorry, not all of the tax that you collect has to be paid to the ATO, it makes it even harder because obviously if you've got expenses, they incur GST and that can be deducted. So it can be very time consuming trying to do the calculations. This week I brought in this much GST, this week I paid out that much GST, I need to retain $500 in my tax account. There's, there's no easy solution to that. If you could afford to put away the amount of tax that you brought in and forget about what you spent out, that would be great because you'd always have too much put aside. But that's not always going to be the case. I think I keep a spreadsheet which says each week this is my sales and how so I'm, I'm forcing myself to having savings that at the end of the quarter I can go, you little beauty, I've got some leftover spare tax money. So your spreadsheet does what? My software or my spreadsheet that your, I just referred the spreadsheet, to? The spreadsheet that you just referred to, what does it do? Oh, it's very simple. At the end of each week, I, I say, what was my turnover for the week? And I divide that by 11 and say, that was how much GST I, I brought in. Right. And I keep a running tally. Right. If I really wanted to get anal about it, I could also say, what were my expenses for the week? This is how much GST I can claim back. And I could actually subtract the two numbers and say, this is how much I need to put aside into a tax account. And most businesses don't seem to have tax accounts, from what I can see. No. And, and look, when I was in year 12, which was 1974, a long time ago, we had a poem called Mending Walls, and there were two farmers, 
And they're walking down the fence between them and talking. One farmer was yakking on and the other farmer just kept saying, good fences make good neighbours. Good fences make good neighbours. And at the time, I had no idea what that poem meant. But I now understand it can be applied to many, many things in life. And bank accounts is one of them. If you've got money that needs to be kept, you put it in a separate bank account where you can't get at it. That's putting a fence around it. Good fences make good neighbours. Um, I tell people each week to put money into a bank account that's for food, fuel, fun and incidentals. They choose how much money that is, say it's $500 a week. It goes into a separate account with a debit card and that's how much they're allowed to spend it all every week. And if it runs out, they wait till Friday. If there's some left over, they've got a bonus for next week. Basically, that's a safety valve around their spending. What happens if it runs out on Wednesday? Uh, can they uh, dip Too it bad. to another account? Wait till Friday. It's that simple. And I'm talking household budgeting. And but even in-, in a business, if you haven't got money this week, you wait till Friday when you do have. And it's interesting you said use a debit card. In other words, don't spend what you haven't got. Oh, that's like putting, putting petrol on a fire hoping it will go out using a credit card to pay bills when you haven't got the money. No one would throw petrol on a fire to put it out, but that's what using credit is like when you don't have the money to pay it otherwise. I'm amazed that so many people are so, well, I won't say ignorant, but so oblivious to these issues when they're setting up a business and when they're running a business. Well, I was a high school teacher for 20 years, so I'm allowed to criticise the education system, at least here in Queensland, as much as I like. And every crowd of people that I've stood in front of for the last 15 years when I've run seminars and things and talked about what we got taught at school about managing money, everybody says it was so close to nothing it wasn't funny. So unfortunately the education system has failed us all miserably and people really need to make it a priority to get educated about simple, basic, day-to-day mathematics around money. David Wright, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, guys. Well, as we said, a lot of common sense, practicality, and uh, keeping an eye on the main channel. And terrific advice. Terrific advice, yeah. Now, let's have a chat with economist Nicholas Gruen about innovation. Nicholas Gruen, uh, the government has a statement coming out about innovation. Uh, what's your view? Well, my view is that it'll, it, uh, it's going to look a lot like other innovation statements, which I characterise somewhat unfairly as putting on the binoculars, looking around, looking to see that stuff is what's innovative out there and subsidising it. And um, that makes some sense, but I think we can do a lot by focusing on the question of how governments can drive innovation by doing their own job better, by being more flexible, uh, by being more forward-looking, by being more proactive in their purchasing behaviour, all sorts of things like that. And uh, in the same way that we get gains from trade, in the same way that, uh, you know, if we export wheat and import cameras, the two countries that trade will each do more of what they're good at. Uh, In a similar kind of way, uh, governments, if they were more nimble, would uh, be able to drive innovation. And that's by overhauling their procurement features or...? Well, no. Procurement is the... uh, I mean, they should overhaul their procurement features. The reason I didn't want to talk about procurement is that everybody talks about procurement and we can certainly discuss procurement, but there are... uh, Take the idea of the nudge, um, something small that governments can do to tip the scales to, uh, towards something that we want to happen rather than uh, against it. So one thing that um, 
the one thing we spend our time agonising about is the fact that large super funds, and there are there is an awful lot of money tied up in super, around about $2 trillion, they don't find it very attractive to fund startup or even development finance, even Series B rounds, um, which might be for, say, $10, $15 million or so. Uh, they tend to be buying and selling uh, large cap firms on the ASX now, uh, there are a whole lot of reasons that we can talk about, but one thing we could do with the stroke of a pen to is to try to think about ways we can remove little biases in the system that uh, end up pushing the system towards inertia rather than innovation. For instance, if you're a firm... Very few. If you're a firm running a large super fund, very few of those funds have got a lot of exposure or got much any exposure at all to small cap and development finance. Now, portfolio theory says you should have a small exposure in that area, uh, but nobody does it or very few people do it. Um, and it's a complete defence to negligence to say that what you were doing was normal professional practice. So we ought to actually change the burden of proof there. We, we should say uh, government should commission some independent work to determine what a model portfolio would look like. And portfolio theory would tell you that if the capital structure of the economy uh, has a half a percent in seed and Series A funding and another half a percent in Series B or development finance or probably about one percent, then we can then say that we expect super funds to have that exposure. Uh, and if they don't have that exposure, then we want to see that they've done due diligence on not having that exposure. So that completely reverses the onus of proof away from just continuing to do what you're doing just because nobody else is, uh, just because that's the way you've always done it. And it all seems a bit like hard work and a bit risky to do something new towards something which says that that's the riskiest strategy for you to pursue rather than the lowest risk strategy you should pursue. So that's a, an example. Uh, and I haven't seen anyone talk about anything like that, but I think you can multiply those examples. I've given you an example at a macro level. Um, I can give you examples at, at micro levels. There are Anyway, those are the sorts of things that I'm talking about. That goes completely against uh, the way, say, super funds would be run anyway, wouldn't it? In what sense? Well, super funds are, are left free to do what they want. Uh, well, they are still free. I leave them free to do what they want. I'm, I'm saying that it is incumbent upon them to do due diligence on having a prudent and appropriate exposure to that asset class. And they don't do it. They just say, uh, well, we're not doing that. It's a lot of trouble for us. Uh, nobody else is doing it. We're not good at it and so on. So how would you propose this system be changed? I mean, what exactly should be done to... I just change? explained that. I, I, understand, that I understand that, but uh, what specific measures should the government bring in then in this innovation statement? They commission somebody to set out a model portfolio which specifies a prudent exposure to that asset class. It's going to be something like half a percent uh, of the portfolio should be devoted to that to, to each of those two asset classes and then you say that super funds if they don't have that exposure 
we want to see them show us that they analysed that exposure and they, they have a good reason for persuading that they have made a decision on behalf of their beneficiaries, on behalf of the people that the fund exists for, not to invest in that asset class. I was, I was actually thinking of something beyond super funds. That, uh, are there other areas that uh, governments can look at besides super funds? With regard to innovation, with regard yeah, to creating sure. more innovation? So, a suggestion that I had was um, that uh, the government dominates by way of regulation, by way of funding, by way of service provision, a number of markets. One of them is... Uh, for education, another is for health. There is a lot of innovation going on. There are a lot of things that can be done there. A lot of so. So an example that I've used is a product. It's a Melbourne-based startup. It's called CareMonkey. CareMonkey. I don't suppose you could call it directly an education product. It's what it does is it digitizes this pretty in, uh, this pretty frustrating process of providing permission for your kids to go on an excursion. So you'll get bits of paper home and you sign them and you send them back in with your kids and it's all pretty useless. So what CareMonkey does is you do that sort of stuff at home, you do it for classes of activity, not for each individual excursion, and you enter data into the relevant web page, which documents your child's medical conditions, any allergies, you know, whether they've got asthma or whatever, and uh, they will ask, you know, then there will be numbers to ring, namely your phone number to ring if there's a problem, uh, and as the, the number of his doctor, uh, of your child's doctor, who to ring in an emergency, and so on. And those things are available, come up on the smartphone of the teacher when the teacher is on excursion. Now, that product is being sold to schools uh, around the country, perhaps more widely than that, I don't know, um, and it's sort of doing all right. Uh, what I would do is I would say d- develop some sort of institutional architecture for that. But let's just take the example. I would I would try and reverse the onus of proof on schools. And so I would say within a year's time, you're expected to have briefed yourself on this on these products and chosen a course of action. You can choose to not do anything if you like, but we need to know that you haven't done that just because you didn't get round to it, but because you assessed this and you decided for reasons that you can document that the existing solution gives you your best answer. The main reason I'm surmising why most schools aren't already signed up to these kinds of services is that they haven't got round to it. And I and I don't th- you know and so that's the sort of thing that with a with a bit of just ordinary government liaison and work rather than spending money or subsidizing people the government can nudge the whole system towards innovation and you can do that in health and you can do it in corrective services and a bunch of other areas and uh, what you're doing then as a government is you're getting these agencies to look out for these new innovative products exactly and you're saying that's part of their core business and in fact you know i would take it further and i would say that maybe you know start with a small number like half a percent maybe less of the turnover of the education and health sectors should be quite specifically directed towards 
the translational tasks of making sure that the you know that this industry whatever it is is well informed about these possibilities uh, and possibly also a bit of development funding so uh, there's another example in health um, a company uh, that I have an indirect interest in called Olo Mobiles which is digitizing the what you put around old people's necks you know those things where uh, if they fall over, they have a panic button that they can press and say, I'm, I've, you know, I've fallen over, I need help. Uh, now, you don't have to think about that for very long to realise that if you digitise that again, just like CareMonkey, you can produce a much better uh, outcome. You know, this thing hanging around your neck can take bio data from you. When you fall, it can ask you if you're all right because it'll know that you fall and it'll, it'll have a, a gyroscope in there and an accelerometer. This This product then makes a conference call to five numbers that you nominate. They can be, you know, next of kin and so on, people who look out for you. And then if nothing happens in that in 45 seconds of ringing that in that conference call, then it rings the ambulance. It also is collecting bio data the whole time and may be able to help predict when you're well and when you're sick and when you need to worry about falling and so on and so forth. Now, in that case... Not only should aged care providers and the, the you know, health and community care sector be aware of this, but we spend, I think, more than a billion dollars a year on health and community care. It seems to me this is a product that is not yet in the market. It may take another $5 million worth of development money to get it to the market. And it's the sort of thing that healthcare providers, you know, that's a tiny drop in the ocean and can substantially improve their operations. So I'd like to see governments encouraging the these organisations on the ground with the intelligence and the need for these products to also be part of developing, uh, of funding their development. Nicholas Gruen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? It's a bit different from the way the bureaucrats go on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether government agencies will target innovative companies uh, and innovative startups. But, uh, you know, we'll see what the government has planned in its innovation statement. Yeah, in the end, it's the market that'll decide. But uh, with a bit of a boost, it'd be a help. And now the news. Well, Gary, first of all, uh, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation Development, the OECD, says Australia is facing two years of subpar economic growth and high unemployment. And in its latest forecast, the OECD has cut its forecast for Australian growth from 3% for five months ago to 2.6%. It's warned that unemployment is going to stay above 6% and there'll be a delay to budget surplus. And that means Australian growth is unlikely to recover until 2017. It also means Malcolm Turnbull is going to go to an election with Unemployment above 6%. Where it's been for, what, better than 12 months. That's right, that's right. And it's not good news for the government. But on the other hand, the Paris-based institution says Australia should increase and broaden the GST and lower what it calls distorting income and in-transaction taxes. But overall, the OECD has trimmed its forecast for global growth to 2.9% this year. That's down from its previous projection of 3%. And that represents the slowest pace of expansion since the global financial crisis in 2009. 
nothing much has been improving since then. No, no, no. Now uh, to China, and China's actually recorded its highest trade surplus on record, and that's plunging imports have highlighted the struggle to boost domestic demand and prop up sagging growth, and that's a worrying figure. Uh, the disappointing figures add to mounting evidence that China could be heading for a hard landing. Now, as the planet's biggest trader in goods and a key driver of already subdued world growth, the figures add to signs that the global economy is going to face its toughest year since the height of the financial crisis. Now, imports in China... Imports fell 18.8% compared to a year ago to US $130.7 billion. That's $183 billion Aussie. That's the 12th monthly drop in imports, the 12th consecutive monthly drop in imports, and that follows a 20.4% decrease in September. Exports, too, continued their losing streak from July, dropping by 6.9% year-on-year in October to $192.4 billion because foreign demand is languishing. And that set the trade surpluses at uh, US $61.6 billion. That's up 36% compared to the same period in 2014. That's actually the highest figure since 1995, the last 20 years. It's quite amazing, really, but it's a worry. China's uh, slowing down. That's right. The other worry is, of course, plunging oil prices, and International Monetary Fund Chief uh, Christine Lagarde is warning the global energy prices could remain low for years, and she's told Gulf countries to adjust their budgets. She's warned that these countries can no longer rely on revenues from oil and gas. She says the IMF believes growth across the Gulf countries could fall from 3.2% this year to 2.7% in 2016. She says export revenues could come in at 275 billion US, which is about 384 billion Aussie, lower this year than in 2014 because of low energy prices. Now, the issue is the price of oil has dropped by more than half since the beginning of 2014. Brent crude, the international benchmark, was has been trading around $47. Way, way down, isn't it? Was 100 bucks at one point. That's right. To Australia and Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has pledged not to increase the goods and services tax without providing some sort of compensation for low-income families. And he was actually questioning, question, he was challenging question time about the potential impact of a 15% hike in the GST on low-income families and Turnbull flatly ruled out any increase without any compensation. And he said raising the GST without compensation was, in his words, inconceivable. Now, the government is actually, interestingly, looking at expanding the GST to include banks and financial services to a, into a GST which would be 15%. That would raise about $27 billion. And that would also help pay for, to, for it to reduce the corporate tax rate to 30% now being demanded by business because last week the Business Council of Australia was urging the Turnbull government to make a lower corporate tax rate the top priority. The government said that back in 2000 when the GST was introduced, there was unanimous agreement that financial services were just too complex to be included in the GST when it was introduced. But time and technology have changed Australia. You know, the money's got to come from somewhere. We've got a lot of debt. That's right. That's right. Now, uh, Treasury is looking at uh, changing super contribute super tax contributions it's looking at introducing a progressive tax on super contributions and putting a cap on net nest eggs it's looking at taxing contributions at 20 percentage points below each individual's marginal income tax rate so in other words if you're a high income earner earning above 180,000 you'll pay a super contribution tax of 27% or 25% once a temporary high income and 2% additional budget levy is removed and that's a big change from the current system where all super contributions are taxed at a 
flat rate of 15%. Now, a progressive tax system on super moves away from the current arrangements where super concessions mostly benefit those on the top marginal tax rate of 47% plus a 2% Medicare levy because when you're paying 15%, it's a big advantage. It's a greater advantage than the lower income earners. Absolutely. The government is looking at these changes because the argument that super tax concessions are unfairly skewed to the highly paid. And Treasury is also considering a lifetime cap on nest eggs that would see wealthier workers losing tax breaks on future payments on their super funds. Now, uh, some interesting uh, stats. Uh, business confidence has slipped back. The Turnbull effect has lost, been lost, according to the National Australia Bank's latest monthly survey. It's fallen to a reading of two in October. That's actually down. It's significantly lower than the reading of five in September, and it's close to the level of one in August, just before Tony Abbott was replaced as Prime Minister. On the other hand, consumers are feeling more buoyant. The latest Westpac Melbourne Institute index show the consumer sentiment rose by 3.9% November to 101.7 points. That's lifting above 100 points. Now, that signals that retailers can expect a bumper Christmas and Westpac Chief Economist Bill Evans says it's a cracker result and it reflects the leadership change in Canberra. Yeah, people feel more confident with Malcolm at the helm. That's right, that's right. Now, on the other piece of news is that Australian job advertisements rose for the third consecutive months with overall economic activity expected to remain solid for the next year. And that's according to the ANZ, uh, latest ANZ job advertisements figures. The number of job ads on the internet and newspapers edged up 0.4% in October. And job ads in the 12 months to October rose 12.1% since adjusted. And so that's a good sign. It is, yeah. Uh, on the other hand... Uh, um, the latest ABS figures show that investor lending has collapsed and finance for investors have fallen by 8.5% in September. That's the fastest monthly drop in seven years. And investor lending for property is now in retreat and it's fallen now for five consecutive months. Now, the last time investor lending nosedive was at such a pace was in August 2008 when it fell 8%. But that's quite significant, Gary. Yeah, a lot of that would be Chinese um, sitting on their hands a bit. Well, a lot of it is in reaction to the APRA uh, tightening yeah. up lending requirements from yeah. banks. Now, according to the latest Ernst & Young report, mergers and acquisitions in Australia and New Zealand are a tip to accelerate with more companies pursuing global growth opportunities. The six-month Australia Australasia Capital Confidence Barometer found that 53% of Australian companies were planning acquisitions over the next 12 months. It's up from 44% six months ago. The proportion of companies with three or more deals in the pipeline has skyrocketed to 83%. That's up from 25% six months ago. Interestingly enough, the most targeted sector was the Australian food services because Australia is seeking to establish itself as Asia's food bowl, Gary. Yeah, pretty obvious. And uh, life sciences is in there as well, isn't it? Yeah, so is uh, consumer retail. That's right. That's right. Now to corporate news. And embattled oil and gas producer Santos has appointed Kevin Gallagher, the chief executive engineering services group uh, Clough, as its new chief executive. And it's announced measures to reduce its net debt by $3.5 billion. Now that $3.5 billion reduction includes a $2.5 billion capital raising and $500 million placement to a Chinese private equity firm Honey Capital. So the Chinese have come in to rescue Santos, Gary. A bit of a surprise. Now, the company is also making $520 million from the sale of a 35% stake in the Kipper gas field to Mitsui Australia. Now, all of this follows a strategic review in the wake of the company's debt, which blew 
blew out to 8.8 billion, building the US 18 billion Gladstone LNG project, which has had a 30% stake. And the debt load, unfortunately for Santos, coincided with the crash in oil prices. And of course, what happened was its profit fell 82%. Santos cut jobs. It reduced its capital expenditure. And in August, it sacked its chief executive, David Knox. And the Santos share price has fallen by almost 60% since uh, September 2014. Yeah, that makes it even harder for them. Now, Nine Entertainment has announced that board director Hugh Marks is going to be the new chief executive officer of the Nine Network, effective from last that was effective from last Tuesday. And Marks is replacing long-term CEO David Gingell, who's going to stay on the board as non-executive director. And at the same time, uh, Adani's Carmichael coal mine is in trouble again. The Australian Conservation Foundation is launching legal action against Federal Government Environment Minister Greg Hunt over his reapproval of the mining giant $16.5 billion mine. And the action lodged in the federal court in Brisbane on Monday is the latest in this ongoing battle between green groups and the government. And the government says the mine slated for Queensland Galilee Basin is going to create jobs and economic growth. The uh, green groups are saying it's going to pour carbon uh, greenhouse gas emissions out and it's going to wreck the Great, Great Barrier Reef. And pollute the water table in the in the Galilee Bay. So uh, let's let's just take a look at. Yeah. Uh, I think this is going to take months and months. This law case is going to take months and months. It'll take a long time, and then furthermore, I'm not sure Adani's ever going to go ahead anyway. That's right. That's right. Well, we talked to Tim Buckley about it a few weeks ago, and he had great doubts about it because of the oil price. Uh, the battle for control of Asiano, the ports and. Uh, Freight company intensified with QUBE. It's launched a bid of nine, a $9 billion bid at $9.25 a share. The offer was made to counter the takeover proposal for Canada's Brookfield Infrastructure Group, which was $6.94 in cash and 0.387 of a Brookfield unit, which values, which comes out to a value of $9.22. And the wording of the QUB offer suggested it's gloves off. Now, given the QUB consortium owns 19.9% of Asiano, Brookfield 19.3%, this latest development gives the Asiano board plenty to think about. They do. It uh, looks like it's, it's going to get sold, whatever. And as widely expected, Gary, finally, Sydney Project Management software company Atlassian has filed for an IPO on the NASDAQ, and it's going to trade under the ticker name Team, T-E-A-M, which is not surprising because its software is designed to help Team. And um, what's interesting is the detail in the 233-page preliminary prospectus filed with the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission. Now, Atlassian has been profitable for the last 10 years, which actually makes it unusual for a software company. Now, uh, it generated uh, US $319.5 million in revenue in financial year 2015. It has 51,000 customers across 160 countries, and those include 79 of the Fortune 1,400 businesses. And other clients include NASA, to help design the Mars rover, and Cochlear, to develop oral implants. And the IPO price is yet to be disclosed. But what's interesting in the uh, IPO document is there's a letter attached, and it clearly sets out the company's values. And it's a very Australian company, and it's told Wall Street Street investors in a typical Aussie touch. It's told them it's a no bullshit company. And secondly, its other principle is you don't f- with the customer. Quite right too. It's actually, it's actually fantastic. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, next week, we're going to talk to Alex Peru all about uh, connecting up with people and uh, linked, linked, LinkedIn connections. And we'll have an, another chat with a ranking economist. That's right. That's right. And um, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you in a week's time.